Good morning. Welcome to our 10 o'clock worship sermon. Uh, I'm Pastor Stephen, uh, the teaching pastor of Calvary Baptist Church here in Phillipsburg, Kansas. Uh, we thank you for joining us at our 10 o'clock service as we go through the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, which we believe is a uh, excellent summary of the important things uh, that the Bible teaches concerning the Christian faith. Uh, we thank you for joining us, and we hope that uh, our 10 o'clock service uh, is a blessing to you and to your family. This morning, we are going to discuss the covenant of works. Uh, it is the first covenant uh, that we experience in Scripture. It is the covenant that God made with Adam in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Um, this uh, first covenant uh, is nowhere found, nowhere found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The word covenant is nowhere found. But consider these two things. Uh, number one, the term covenant does not have to be explicitly used in Scripture if the concepts of a covenant are clearly revealed in Scripture. And we do see the concepts of a covenant in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Uh, and we'll get to the concepts later on in our sermon today. Uh, but uh, for the time being, we do see the concepts of a covenant. Secondly, the term covenant is explicitly used concerning Adam in another place in Scripture. Although the term covenant does not appear in Genesis 1 and 2 concerning the life of Adam, it is referenced in Hosea chapter 6. And verse 7, uh, the Lord says, But like Adam, they, the Israelites, transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And so based on this declaration, Adam indeed stood in a covenant relationship with God. And also uh, from this declaration, we know that Adam violated the terms of that covenant. And so what does the scripture say about the covenant of works? According to scripture, the Garden of Eden was not man's initial location. In Genesis chapters 2, uh, verses 5 through 9, the scripture says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprang up, for the Lord has not caused it to rain yet on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life was in the middle of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil was there as well. Adam, according to Scripture, was made from the dust of the ground. And then the Lord planted a garden in Eden, and God put Adam in that garden. So Adam was made first on the sixth day, and then on the sixth day the garden uh, was made, and then God placed Adam in the garden. The Bible's description of 
Eden makes it appear to be some sort of temple or like a sanctuary. Uh, Have you ever considered uh, the language that the scripture uses to describe the Garden of Eden? In Genesis chapter 2, the Garden of Eden has an eastern designation. Uh, It's located on top of a mountain. Uh, Included uh, in the garden were rivers and trees, precious stones. Uh, This description of the Garden of Eden is very similar to the descriptions of the tabernacle, the temple that Solomon built, and the New Jerusalem. Listen to what Revelation chapter 21 verse 10 says about the New Jerusalem. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, the south, three gates, and on the west were three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Very similar to Eden. Like Eden, New Jerusalem is on a mountain. Uh, There is uh, the presence of God. There are precious stones. Uh, There's some kind of embroidery. Uh, along the perimeter of New Jerusalem, on the walls. Very similar to Eden. And we know from Scripture that God often met with his prophets and his apostles from the top of the mountain. So God met with Adam on a mountain. He met with uh, Moses on top of Mount Sinai, Elijah on top of Mount Carmel, God met with Peter, James, and John, three apostles on the top of Mount of Transfiguration. The temple that Solomon built was built on the hilltop of Jerusalem. Very similar. The presence of the metals provided beauty and excellence to these structures. In All places of these worships, we find images of trees or actual trees. The tabernacle and the temple had images of menorahs that were embroidered in the curtains. Uh, There were pictures of almond trees and their blossoms in the tabernacle and the temple. The Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem, they didn't have images of trees. They had actual trees that were planted. In fact, in both the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem, the tree of life is present. Another common theme that the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, and the New Jerusalem shared is God's presence. God's presence was in every one of these institutions. In the Garden of Eden, the scripture says, God walked with Adam. When the tabernacle was built, God's presence filled it. The same with the temple. God's presence filled the temple. Uh, We read from Revelation 21 that uh, God came down with Jerusalem. The glory of God filled the new Jerusalem. Another common theme that the Garden of Eden 
the tabernacle, the temple, and the new Jerusalem shared is God's rejection and hatred of sin. The Lord threatened Adam. If you sin, you're gone. He gave the same threats to the Israelites that they would be expelled from the tabernacle. Uh, They would be expelled from the temple. And in the new Jerusalem, there is no presence of sin. What's my point? The point is the Garden of Eden was a sanctuary. It was a sanctuary. And Adam was the federal head of this sanctuary. And he also represented his offspring. God gave Adam the command to fill the earth with his seed. And so Adam was placed in the sanctuary of the garden. And God made him the federal head, the representative over all of his offspring. And since Adam was the federal head of this covenant, the covenant of works, Adam owed absolute obedience to God. Adam had the law of nature that was written on his heart. God also gave him a positive law. Uh, What do I mean by positive law? A positive law is an explicit law that specifies an action. What explicit law did God give to Adam when he was in the Garden of Eden? The scripture says God commanded Adam to not eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is a positive law that God personally and explicitly gave to Adam. And so Adam had two sets of laws. He had a natural law written on his heart, and he had a revealed, personal, positive law given to him straight from God. And it was to this law, these laws, the the law of nature and the law of positive, the positive law that Adam owed obedience to, And if he disobeyed, it would affect him and all his offspring. One thing as I spent the last few years studying covenant theology, I love the idea of Adam being the priest, prophet, and king of the Garden of Eden. As a federal head, God established him as the prophet, priest, and king of of his covenant. As a priest, he ministered in the sanctuary of the Garden of Eden. He was the mediator of the covenant. He was responsible for keeping the sanctuary. The Lord gave Adam the commandment to to keep, to guard and to keep. Listen to what the scripture says about the Old Testament priest. And this is Numbers chapter 3 at verse 6. The scripture says, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. As they minister at the tabernacle, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. This is the same kind of language 
that God spoke to Adam in Eden. Both the priest and Adam kept, guarded, and worked their places of worship. How did Adam do this? By his obedience. By his obedience, Adam would keep the sanctuary clean from sin. Same language as the priest. Not only was Adam the priest of Eden, he was also the prophet. In what ways uh, was Adam the prophet of the Garden of Eden? Well, who received the word of the Lord? Adam did. And as the husband of Eve and the father of his offspring, Adam was also responsible to relay the word of the Lord and the terms of the covenant to everyone else. That was his responsibility. Adam was also responsible to warn and to rebuke all adversaries. Didn't the prophets receive the word of the Lord? Wasn't a prophet responsible to relay the word of the Lord to everybody else? Wasn't the prophet responsible to rebuke all adversaries? Of course. And so Adam fulfilled the office of a prophet in the Garden of Eden. Adam was also king too. God commanded Adam to be fruitful to multiply and to fill the earth. And if Adam obeyed the Lord, his offspring would have been holy and pleasing to God. Adam was a kingdom builder, just like God. And as the earth would have become populated by Adam's holy seed, Eden's boundaries would have spread to the ends of the earth. Adam would have been the king of the covenant and the kingdom of the whole earth if he would have obeyed because God gave him that command to multiply, to fill the earth. And if Adam would have remained holy, he would have a holy seed and that holy seed would have filled the earth. God's kingdom through Adam would have spread over the face of the earth. Adam was prophet, Adam was a priest, and Adam was a king of the old covenant. Last week, I mentioned the term typology. Uh, Typology is like biblical symbolism. Under the old covenant, certain people, places, and institutions, also events, can serve as types that have a future fulfillment called antitypes. We already addressed that the Garden of Eden is a type. It's a type of the New Jerusalem. It's a type of tabernacle. It's a type of the temple. Edom was uh, a, an earthly sanctuary that pointed to a heavenly one, the New Jerusalem. Adam was also a type. And from the scripture, we learn that his antitype is the Lord Jesus Christ. How is Adam a type of Christ and how is Christ the fulfillment of Adam? Well, first, both are called the Son of God. In Luke chapter 3, verse 38, the scripture calls Adam the son of God. Now, I, I shouldn't have to quote any scripture to prove that Jesus is the son of God because it's written all over the, the New Testament. There are so many scriptures that it would be a waste of time by quoting them. I think all of us can agree that the scripture calls Jesus the son of God. He was called the son of God by the angels at his birth. 
He was called the Son of God in the genealogies. He was called the Son of God on top of Mount Transfiguration at his baptism. Jesus was called Son of God over and over again in the New Testament. So both Adam and the Son of God, Jesus, shared that aspect. Secondly, both Adam and Jesus came in the likeness of human flesh. Uh, and, and their human flesh was also uniquely made. According to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God made Adam from the dust of the ground. That's very unique. And according to Luke chapter 2, Jesus was uniquely born of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Do you know anybody else who was born from the dust of the ground? Do you know anyone else who had a virgin birth born of the Holy Spirit? No, neither do I. Very unique births. Uh, Jesus and Adam also were covenant heads. Uh, Adam represented all those who would be born of him by ordinary generation in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus represents all those who would be born again of supernatural regeneration. As covenant heads, uh, the sanctions of the covenants are imputed to their offspring. What I mean by that is um, Adam's obedience. If he would obeyed God, his obedience would have been imputed to his offspring. But since he disobeyed the Lord, his disobedience, his unrighteousness was imputed to all of his offspring. The same with Jesus. Jesus perfectly obeyed God. Therefore, all of his righteousness is imputed to his offspring, those who would be born by supernatural regeneration. Another typology, another comparison between Jesus and Adam is that they both succeeded, uh, they both fulfilled the office of a priest, prophet, and king. Although Jesus was the only one to succeed, Adam failed. As a priest, Jesus purifies the people of God. He mediates on our behalf. Uh, it is uh, Adam's work failed in the garden. Jesus' works succeed. As the prophet, Jesus is not only the preacher of the word of God, but he is the word of God that is preached. As a king, Jesus sits on the throne of God's everlasting kingdom. Can't you see the relationship between the first Adam and this last Adam, Jesus? Doesn't that make sense? Although the antitype, Christ, is greater than the type, Adam, you can still learn a lot about Jesus' humanity by studying Adam's. And vice versa, you can learn a lot about Adam's humanity by studying Jesus. That's how typology works. There is a relationship between the type and the antitype, although the antitype exceeds and is greater than the type. And not only that, the scripture explicitly tells us. Romans 5.14, Paul says, Adam was a type of him who was to come. And the context of him in that passage is Christ. So Adam is explicitly referred to as a type of Christ. And therefore, Christ is the antitype or fulfillment of Adam. He's a greater Adam. The last part of the covenant of works that I want to address this morning is the arrangement. And what I mean by that is, is the covenant of works still active today or has it been canceled? And the answer is yes and no. 
There is a part of the covenant of works that remains in effect today, and there is a part of the covenant of works that is no longer in effect today. The promises of the covenant have been canceled, but the curses are still in effect. Let me explain. Upon Adam's breach of the covenant, the curses of the covenant were activated and the promises of the covenant were abrogated. The moment that Adam sinned, the promises were canceled, but the curses continued. What were the curses of the covenant? Sin and death. Sin and death entered the world through Adam, so sin and death spread to all men. That's the curse. Because of Adam's sin, all his descendants enter the world with Adam's sin nature. We are born sinners. We have inherited Adam's sin from birth. That doesn't stop. As long as people are born according to natural procreation or ordinary procreation, they're born in the world. They will enter the world members of fallen humanity. That doesn't change. But the blessings of Adam's covenant, they've been canceled because the blessings of Adam's covenant were enacted based on Adam's obedience. And Adam stopped obeying God. Eternal life, communion with God, those are the blessings. Dominion over the earth, dominion over animals, a healthy, holy seed, gone. Paradise lost. So the moment that Adam sinned, all the blessings of his covenant were gone and the curses were activated. And those curses are still activated today. But will they last forever? And the answer to that question is no. When Jesus returns to consummate his kingdom, the kingdom of Adam will be completely torn down. And that's what Jesus is actively doing right now. He is actively reversing the curse of Adam's kingdom. And guess what? Once those curses are reversed and they're canceled by Christ, the blessings of the covenant will be fully obtained. They will be. And, and some of those blessings, right, those spiritual blessings are being overturned as we speak, right? But not through our personal obedience. The blessings of the covenant, eternal life, communion with God, they can only be obtained through the personal obedience of Christ. Also, God's command to Adam of multiplying and working, that continues today. Although the curse has changed them significantly, God gave Adam the command to fill the earth and to work the ground before he sinned. Those two commands continue today. But we'll, we'll struggle. We'll struggle. We'll, we'll struggle to survive. Work will not be easy. Tilling the ground won't be easy. It will always not, it will not always bring forth success. The field will resist our work. 
The woman's seed, the woman's womb will resist the seed. The woman will resist her husband. Guys, Adam's life changed significantly because of his disobedience. God promised Adam to multiply, fill the earth. Although that command still stands, it's, it's affected big time. One last thing. Uh, earlier, I mentioned typology uh, and you know biblical symbolism. We talked about Eden and how it's a type of the new Jerusalem and Adam's a type of Christ. But the promise of the covenant is also a type. In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises the serpent that one day someone will come, a human will come and crush the head of the serpent. So from this point forward, the people of God have always hoped and they've always waited for this certain seed to come, for him to come and to destroy the works of darkness, to come and destroy sin, to take away Adam's guilt and condemnation, to reverse the curse of the fall. And as you read through scripture, right, through God's redemptive plan, this seed, who this seed is, becomes clearer and clearer. We find out in the, Noah, in the Noah's covenant that he is the ark who saved Noah and his family from the flood. In Abraham's covenant, he is the offspring of Abraham. In the Mosaic covenant, he is the true son of Israel. He's a true son of God. Uh, under the Davidic covenant, he is David's heir, the great king. And under the new covenant, he's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know that he's a seed of the woman? Listen to Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Paul says, God, referring to Christ, will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed of the woman. And this is what the people of God have hoped for. You, you, you're asked all the time, you know, how, how do the people of God under the old covenant, how were they saved? How did they have faith? Who do they have faith in? In the type. They had faith in the type. They had faith that God would be true to his word, that he would soon send the seed of the woman to crush their enemy. Under Noah's covenant, the people of God would believe that God would send the real and true ark, the one that they can have refuge in and and be in and, and, and have safety from death and have eternal life through him. The promise of Abraham's covenant, that Abraham's offspring, the one that God would bless and fill the earth with godly seed and a godly people. Under Moses' covenant, that God will have a true son, a a true people, a true holy nation. And through David's covenant, God would provide a king to reign over them. And underneath the new covenant, we find that this person is none other 
than the Lord Jesus Christ.